0: I, I didn't know if I would have one of these days again. I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, I, I kind of thought that I may be done. That that uh, after 13 years of serving one church, that maybe God was just gonna I was gonna go sell real estate. Um, that maybe maybe the best years were behind me. And some of you are like you're 15. Like how are the best years? Behind you, but but in my mind, I, I didn't know that another opportunity like this would happen. And I've prayed for and longed for and looked for just a group of people that I could go to war with for the kingdom of God. And I, I don't know what happened, but the, after meeting your elders and your leadership and talking to your staff and and meeting Pastor Rob in the transition and and just getting to know the congregation, I was like, okay, all right, I I can, I can go to battle with these people. And um, I, that's what we're here to do. This is not a game. Church is not about being entertained. It's about the manifest presence of God being made known in and through our lives so that it impacts a community and pushes back the darkness and breaks the strongholds of the enemy out of this, out of this area. And what we're doing is of eternal significance. The life you live, not just in here but outside of here, matters. Matters. Anyone professing to be a follower of Christ, the way you live, uh, the way you worship, in here and out of here, matters. Uh, We have a short amount of time with the most valuable asset that we have, time, to leverage it to make an eternal difference. And my goal over the next months and years together is that we would leverage time generously upon our Savior with an open-handed attitude that allows him to do incredible things. And so I, I am extremely excited about this. I uh, couldn't sleep last night, felt like Christmas morning, uh, and I just cannot wait to open the Word of God with you over the weeks to come and go there. We are going to go to the 23rd Psalm to finish it finally today. We're going to be in Psalm 23, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. If you have your Bibles, let's open, it's, a, it's open to there. It's a great way to land the plane on this series, but i, I got to give some honor today. Uh, Because we're here uh, because you guys have been faithful in transition, and as a result of your faithfulness, we have an opportunity to go into this new season together. And so I want to honor our elders, our our directional leadership team. Can we give them praise for the work God did through them? Uh, It's been so great getting to know you, uh, getting to meet you, but I I especially want to give some honor to one person this morning uh, who's kind of been a jack of all trades in this church. Um, Austin, I, I see... Christ in you, um, yeah, and um, Austin, Austin has been in many ways an anchor for this church, I'm still trying to figure out what he doesn't do in this church, um, but I've seen Christ in you in the way that you loved this staff in transition, I've seen Christ in you in the way that you love your family and getting to know your family in this short amount of time. Uh, I see Christ in you and the way that you just have this attitude that wants to see kingdom things done and you're willing to do whatever it takes. I've learned uh, to the point of maybe even sacrificing your own physical health at times to see God's kingdom come through this church into this community. And I want to give honor to you today because you've done a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Day oneer, right there. That's a day oneer. He's been here for all ten, and probably every of every one of the five hundred and twenty Sundays out of maybe two or three. So, praise God, you took a vacation somewhere over the last ten years, um, man. Pastor Rob, thank you for your work in this transition. Yeah. Uh, for loving our church well. And we're going to honor Pastor Rob in the weeks to come. And so stay tuned with that as we uh, look to continue to try and give honor and build a culture of honor here. Psalm 23 is one of my favorite psalms. We've been trying to put it to memory. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for for his namesake. Even though I walk through, oh, excuse me, he restores my soul, he leaves me name for namesake. Yeah, I got it right. Verse four, y'all weren't you y'all weren't like watermelon the words back with me. I was hoping someone would be like, yeah, we've memorized it with you, pastor. We'll work on that. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Woo, he's a good God. I get to preach that today. I'm grateful. I'm going to have fun. I don't know if you're going to have fun, but I'm going to have fun in verse 5. You prepare a table for me in the present news. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness, surely, if he's that good, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, uh, old Baptist preacher. One time, I was uh, at one of these, like in Piedmont. So you know, it was the boonies. Anybody know where Piedmont is? Okay, yeah. There ain't nothing like going and getting Mexican food in Piedmont and then going to church. Uh, there were these three preachers. One, one preached hellfire. One preached brimstone. And one preached the end. So it was hellfire and brimstone, and uh, there was a lot of yelling. I don't really know what happened. It was an experience. I was scared. And I wanted to commit to whatever was going to keep me from whatever they were talking to at the end of it. But the preacher got up and he said, you're either in a storm, going into a storm, or coming out of a storm. <laughs> Anyone ever heard that? And so, so you, you kind of build a complex up when you hear preaching like that, that when things get good, you start getting nervous. Because you're just waiting on like, it to go wrong. Because I don't know about you, but I've gotten really good at embracing what I would call the suck in life. Maybe that's inappropriate, but like, like I can endure when, thing, like when things are going wrong. I'm like, oh, i comfortable. When things start going right, I'm like, what's, what's wrong? And I start looking. Like I, get, I get nervous, and I start looking. And it's because I've, I, I, in my mind, have concluded wrongly that life is a series of battles and blessings. So when you're in a series of blessings, you should be looking because there's a battle that's going to come. And if you're not prepared, it's, it's not going to be good, right? Uh, so every time I'm in the season of blessing, I found myself getting nervous because I knew there was a season of battles coming. So I almost never enjoyed the season of blessings because I was worried about the battle that I didn't see. And then I would get into the battle, and I would, like, in the midst of the battle, get comfortable with it, and I wouldn't expect God to show up. I would almost become a practical atheist. And what I mean by that is I would pray things that I didn't expect God to actually answer. I would say things that I didn't actually believe about the character of God on repeat. And so I kind of had this fatalistic attitude that I would speak over my life and over the way that I viewed the world around me that all came from this mindset of life is mainly battles with a few blessings until you get to heaven and then maybe it'll all be good and it'll be fixed and we get to like, hang out on clouds and sing Michael W. Smith songs because friends are friends forever, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? But, but there's something that happened called life that began to test that thought. That it's battle, then blessing. Blessing, then battle. It it was this moment where I realized, actually, I think life is two tracks. One's called battle, and one's called blessing. And I'm constantly on both. It's both. It's not that In this season of your life, I would submit to you that you have nothing but battles. No, there's blessings. You just may not be valuing the blessings, but there's blessings. And it's not in the seasons where you just see blessings and it's like, oh man, Jesus is so good, you could like grab him out of the sky because he's so close. That that there's no battles. There's battles, you just aren't seeing the battles. Hallmark movies and Christmas Spirit done got a hold of you. (laughs) Praise God. All you pumpkin lovers, you finally won. It got cold. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So so what I've learned over the last several years of my life is that life is not a series of battles than blessings, but it's parallel tracks that run in my life, and I've got to work the tension of understanding that in this life, God has blessed us, is at work with us, will never forsake or leave us, brings good gifts to us, is a good father that loves to give good gifts to his children. And in the same breath, there are these things called battles that resist the work of God and resist the advancement of God's kingdom in, in futility that exists that we still have to deal with. See, life is not one or the other, it's both and. And in the 23rd Psalm, what's been going on is King David has been rattling off the sufficiency, that's a big word for saying he's able in all seasons and in all circumstances of Jesus to lead him through whatever he is facing. He can lead him through the valley of the shadow of death, which is the worst thing that humanity can face. He can lead him to green pastures. He can lead him beside still waters and give him peace that is like a slow-flowing river and so in this humble brag that David has been doing about his good shepherd at the end of his life when he is writing this he comes to verse 5 and he says this you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies so there is a blessing in the battle it's not one or the other In the presence of his enemies, when he's surrounded by enemies, when he's going through struggle, God provides a table for him to be provided for so that the battle doesn't overtake him. So it's not just battle without refreshment, it's battle and refreshment at the same time. You see, David here subjects God's care to what we might call the ultimate test. He is asserting in verse 5 of Psalm 23 that God's care cannot be negated or destroyed by the fiercest enemies. There's a lot of people that don't like you. I'm just going to go ahead and let you in on a little secret. They don't like you. They, they don't care for you. They may say they love Jesus, but they don't love you. I don't know how that works. But, you know, none, nonetheless, bless their heart. Jesus will work on them. I learned that's what you say in the South after 13 years of being away. Whenever someone does something sinful, stupid, or they can't really do it, but everyone's applauding them as if they can, you just say bless your heart, and it covers everything. So you can say anything you want. From what I understand in the South, as long as I follow it. I lived in California for 13 years with bless your heart. So bless your heart, they can't sing. Uh, And then no one's offended. (laughs) Is that how it works? I'm learning. You see, David in the fifth verse sees himself at a banquet table while while his enemies are gathering around him. While they threaten and snarl, he sits and feasts. Such is the care of God. It brings me to mind Genesis chapter 50. It's one of my favorite stories. In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, there's this guy named Joseph. Joseph had a pretty incredible story. He went from being one of his youngest of the brothers that got bullied and picked on. Any of you, the younger brother that got bullied and picked on? One of you. One of you here got bullied and picked on. Online, I know all of you are at home that probably got bullied and picked on. Praise God, it built character. Um, Joseph got thrown in a pit because he was his father's favorite and he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He was... Too immature to actually handle the big things that God was doing. So God was taking him on a master class of maturation uh, that he probably would not have selected for himself. I heard it said one time, God's first plan for you is humility. The path whenever you reject humility is a path called humiliation, which then brings humility into your life. And so for a lot of us, we got a big call on our life. God wants to do significant things with you, but you can't handle it. So God's got to take you to a master class of maturation to bring you up to the maturity to handle the calling that you have. So so Joseph is sold for some balsamic gum to some traders that were coming by. And uh, they make up a big story that Joseph got killed, smear some blood on his uh, multicolored coat, and go back and tell his father who's heartbroken because he had a favorite. Apparently, you're not supposed to actually tell your kids when one of them's the favorite because it creates some problems. Just a little parental advice. If you're like in front of the other ones, like, and this is my child with whom I'm well pleased, and then there's them. Probably not a good idea. Joseph ends up in Potiphar's house and God, this is what's amazing, it says in the text after he's been sold into slavery and the unthinkables happened and God was with Joseph. It's one of the scariest verses that you read over and over again in Joseph's story. Joseph's life seems to get out of control and over and over again, God asserts in the scripture that he was with him. So just because you're in a battle and you can't see the blessing, it doesn't mean that you don't have the blessed one with you. Sometimes you've got to remind yourself. There's a promise tied to the fact that he never leaves or forsakes us. So even when we're facing enemies and giants that we don't understand and we don't know what it's going to look like on the other side, don't think for a minute that there's not a blessing of the presence of God with you, which is what you actually need to get through what you face. So God was with Joseph and things went well in Potiphar's house. He rose to being, basically being able to do whatever he wanted in Potiphar's house. And one day, Potiphar's wife said, oh yeah, and Joseph said, oh no, and it went wrong. And he ended up in jail. Because it wasn't me in the words of Shaggy. That's the Rust Standard Version. It's not in a Bible print that you'll find anywhere. Um, It's just commentary. Um, So he ends up in prison and he rises in prison and the words come again and the Lord was with Joseph, and then out of all of this misunderstanding and years of his life that seemed to have been wasted and thrown away, God never loses a battle, and he never wastes a hurt, and he never wastes a tear, and he never wastes a heartache, and so all of a sudden, God rises him up out of prison, even after he was forgotten, after translating two guys, the cupbearer's dream, he's forgotten, and he's brought before Pharaoh, and he becomes second in command under Pharaoh, and then a famine breaks out, and God in his providence had a plan with those ratty brothers that threw him into the pit. And out of nowhere, they come showing up looking for grain because the only people that had grain were the people in Egypt because God was with Joseph and gave him wisdom. And all of a sudden, he's standing in front of his brothers, and he's probably thinking what you and I would think if we had lots of our life taken away by our ratty brothers, like, I'm going to get them. This is my moment. But after his father dies and his brothers were afraid, Joseph looked at him and encouraged him and said this about the battle of what these once enemies had been to him. He says in Genesis chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says, uh, what the enemy meant for evil, God intended for Hmm. that's maturity. Don't worry, your life is going to be safe. What the enemy meant for evil, actually God took and turned for good. He prepared a table in the presence of my enemies. You see, David had real physical enemies who desired his demise, the author of the 23rd Psalm. Uh, his father-in-law tried to kill him once or twice or three times, or maybe four. He had his own nation that he would once leave, have an army that was coming after him and hunting him down. There was the Philistines, which they became friends, but they weren't friends in the beginning because there was that whole Goliath issue. Um, but then he went and like lived there for a while because they and they were like really friendly with him. But then he didn't live there and they attacked them again. It's really a, a love-hate relationship. It's complex, right? So David had real physical enemies, and you have real physical enemies. There are a lot of people that don't like you, but I would submit to you that there's three bigger enemies that many of us aren't aware of that try to surround us in our Christian walk and our Christian faith. In fact, I would submit to you that the three biggest enemies of the believer are the world, number one, number two, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world the flesh, and the devil. And if you're not paying attention, the human enemies pale in comparison to these three enemies because these are probably the biggest nemesis of your life and the biggest nemesis of keeping you from what you actually have been created to do for the glory of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Let, let me explain the three biggest enemies. The first one being the world. The word cosmos is, appears 188 times in the New Testament. Cosmos, it's a strong Greek word, Right? And, and that word appears over and over again to discuss and bring up the system of the current world but before Christ came and established his kingdom. And so the idea is there is a system that works counter to the system of God, that works counter to the values of God. And we were born into that system and in our flesh desire and value that tick for tat system. It's a graceless, merciless system. It's a get one up on anyone that you can, YOLO, live your best life now because this is all we've got until it's done. And it's this Evil, uh, corrupt world that works opposite of the way that God originally intended in His creation when He created and called it good. First John chapter 2 brings this system up and he says this, do not love the cosmos or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's where a lot of preachers then go and say, so don't be in a movie theater because when Jesus comes back, if you're in a movie theater, you're going to get left behind. That's what they used to say back in the 70s and 80s. Anyone ever hear that and you were afraid to be in a movie because you're like, Jesus, please don't come right now. I just need an hour and a half because I want to see Jaws. <laughs> I just want to see a shark eat people. I know, it, I know it's sadistic, but it's Halloween, and I'm trying to get her to cuddle with me in the theater. In a holy way, Lord, in a holy way. The, the point is not that you don't enjoy what's a part of this world. The point is that you don't become one with the system of the world, that you don't get into a situation where your heart is turned toward, and you live as a citizen of this system. Before we have a president, we have a king, if you're a follower of Jesus. Before there's any government authority or any authority in your life, we have the authority that is over our life. So we have a king before we have a president. And just to be honest with you, he doesn't need your vote to be king. He doesn't take votes. In fact, if you look at the biblical record of voting, it's worse than America's. I mean, they voted to go back into slavery after they had been broken free. They voted to have a king instead of God rule over them, and they voted to crucify Jesus. So let's just go ahead and submit that we need a king that's not a human king, that's the king of kings over us before we have any government system that we work in or under. And right now around the world, there's a whole lot of Christianity that's thriving under government suppressive systems that do not allow them to open the word of God openly in public without fear of persecution, and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. So so here's what I want to submit to you. We, we, we've got to get away from this comfort culture that sits on rights that we don't actually use. I mean, the average American household has eight Bibles, yet like, let's be honest, most of us in here didn't read one this single week. I mean, the American people are known around the world. If you go and travel and talk to other Christians around the world, we're known as the people with all the rights that take advantage of none of them. So, so we have a king before we have a president. We have a king and a kingdom that we belong to before we have a citizenship. I love being a part of South Carolina. I love being born in the USA. I am proud of our troops and our soldiers. I am proud to be in this country. I don't want to go anywhere else. Let me be very clear. I mean, you can complain all you want about America, but let me just be honest. There's still, Right now in every other country, people aren't standing at the border trying to get in. That's here. You live here. You're welcome. You hit the jackpot when it comes to best of situations in this world that you could be born into. Way to go, your parents. Okay? But, but what, the, what the idea is, is that there is this world that can work, if we're not careful, with stealing our affections and getting us focused on the wrong things. It, it can get us focused on living about a life that's all about now that's not focused on eternity. Therefore, we miss out on making an eternal impact. It can get us so consumed with how the world works that we don't think about how God works and we as ambassadors can begin to misrepresent God in our living because you are a light in darkness and you can't hide in the darkness anymore. You've been made to be an illuminated example of the grace and the mercy and the power of God. Therefore, don't love the world, love the kingdom that's to come because you represent that kingdom before you represent any kingdom on this earth. Your allegiance is there First, notice what he goes on to say for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, we'll bring that up as the second enemy in a second, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This system that's set up to counteract and contradict the values of God. And the world, verse 17, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right now, you have an enemy. The enemy is not a movie. The enemy is not going to a restaurant. The enemy is not having fun with friends. The enemy is not going to a concert. The enemy is allowing your affections and your aim and your goal in life to be obtaining things that are passing away. I said a couple of weeks ago, many of us spend our whole lives stocking up gold only to get to heaven to find out he's paving the streets with it. So why live your life for pavement? I'm just going to let the point resonate for a minute. That's what the pause is for. Go ahead. It's because some, some of you are like, yeah, 40 years, been just stacking up little chunks of gold in a safe, waiting for and hoping for a pandemic, stocking up guns and ammo, just wishing. Maybe you should consider that you were created to live in such a way that represents a kingdom that is coming and not passing away instead of the way that you've been living for a kingdom that will not even be here. At the sound of the trumpet when Jesus comes back. So you have an enemy. The enemy is the world that distracts you and moves your mind away from the things of God to the things of this world. Which means you can't make an eternal impact which is actually what the Holy Spirit was given for you to do. God wants you in your life working at BMW or wherever you work, to make a difference through your work and through your time. In such a way that it would echo as a praise to his glory in eternity. The end book, okay, you go to Revelation, singular. Don't put an S on it, okay? I know we love to put S's on stuff. We go to Walmarts, we go to Targets. We go, I, I, but but like, like, this is not, a, there's one revelation. It was revealing Jesus. It wasn't Revelations, so just just leave your S alone, okay? Um, it's a pet peeve. In, in that book, when Jesus is restoring the new heavens and the new earth, it says, this is kind of a peculiar thing, it says that we were at the, we'll be at the wedding feast, And people began to sing the songs of Moses, uh, began to raise the cup. And the idea is that, get this, everyone you read about in history will be at that wedding banquet feast that's in Christ. And they will begin to lift the cup and say, I was in the backwoods of nowhere, a murderer, and in a burning bush, God spoke and used me to set an entire nation of people free. And then, and then maybe he'll say, and God brought plagues and broke us free from the biggest oppressor in our world. And we walked through the water on dry land and God rained down manna and provided for us. And he'll lift his cup in praise. And the suggestion of the text is, I want you to track with this. After Moses has a turn and Paul has a turn and everyone's raising the cup, you raise the cup. <laughs> and in Duncan... We, we, were, we were living for ourselves, going to Sugartid every weekend and drinking not water. Um, but God broke us free of the addictions. God reconciled the marriage. God used us in our neighborhood. We saw God do, and you, I mean, I want you to consider that's what's worthy of living for now. The kingdom to come. That day where Jesus sets everything that's wrong right, where we are found, as a part of the wedding banquet, faithful with our wicks lit, not running out of oil or hiding or on a run for things of this world, not paying attention to what God's created us to do. So the world is your enemy, number one. Number two, there's this other enemy that's bigger than your enemy that you've been making on social media or whoever they are uh, called your flesh. And it's the most difficult one to deal with. A person abiding in the flesh cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. We're told that in the book of Galatians. The fruit of the uh, flesh is lust and deceit and lies. It's corrupt. It brings disunity within the family and within the church. But a person, this should be countered with this, a person abiding in the flesh cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit, but a person abiding in the Holy Spirit will not produce the fruit of the flesh. Now, I've got the Holy Spirit within me, but I can still be very carnal. I can get petty. I mean, just just talk about Clemson football and where we're at right now. I can get petty and start taking jabs. I mean, let a Carolina fan say something. Say something right now. (laughs) One point win over Vanderbilt. Come at me. Are you kidding? Mighty SEC. Now, it ain't mighty when you're the doormat, okay? I'm just saying. That's called getting in the flesh. I probably just sinned. I I need to probably (laughs) repent, okay? But my my point, thank you, my point, my point, go Clears. my point is that when I abide in the Holy Spirit, I get righteous fruit. But when I abide in my flesh, it does not help or contribute to the work of God. God doesn't need my effort. He needs my effort to submit to allow his effort to flow through me. That's why it says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself daily. How often do you got to get over yourself for God to work through you? It's a daily occurrence. Sometimes it's an hourly occurrence. Let's be honest. For some of us, it's a minute by minute occurrence because I could have given them a piece of my fleshly mind and that wasn't going to help. Someone didn't need to know that on social media. Stop saying that. Stop bringing all the carnality to your social media account thinking that you're working and representing Jesus well. It's a misrepresentation of his kingdom. You see, the daily battle for the believer is allowing the spirit of God to sit in authority over the flesh. Before you met Jesus, you were spiritually dead. You thought it, you desired it, you did it. So your flesh desired it and wanted it, told your mind we have to have it. Your mind then went, how are we going to get it, and began to... Uh, use your body to go and do whatever it took to get it and for many of us we've sinned against our own body because we had to have that thing we tore ourselves down physically we exhausted ourselves because we had to have that thing because we were living in the carnal way of living but it doesn't have to be that way anymore Jesus uh, when you accepted him and received him put the spirit over the flesh so now you have desires you have thoughts that come into your mind and not every one of them needs to be heard or seen You have a filter called the Spirit that you run that through, and the Holy Spirit's like, "What's the goal here? You trying to sleep on the couch? Is that what you're like? Like, because if that's the goal, go for it. You trying to break the family up? You trying to bring chaos? You trying to make this a five-hour conversation?" And so the Holy Spirit begins to filter and give us God's thoughts, which are not our thoughts. They give us God's way, which is not necessarily our way. You see, the flesh must be submitted to the Spirit. The Spirit, when it sits in authority, uh, begins to tell the mind how to think God's thoughts and then begins to tell the body how to honor God with those thoughts and carrying them out. Simply put, are you living by the flesh? Are you living by the Spirit? In Christ, you are spiritually alive. The spirit tells the mind what to think. The mind surrendered to the spirit tells the body what to do. And the results are God-glorifying and fruitful. What do you want? God-glorifying and fruitful living or carnal living that may make you feel good in the moment but will leave you empty and dry and in need in another. The flesh is an enemy. It's a bigger enemy than whoever, Bernice, Beatrice, whoever it is you've been fighting with. And if you're not careful, the flesh will take you down. Number three, there's this uh, third enemy called the devil. And I know that every time you bring the devil up in 2021, people think you're talking about Bobby Boucher's mom and you're going crazy. But the devil, the devil is real. He is a fallen angel. He led a rebellion against God, and one-third of the heavenly host in the book of Job, according to it, were thrown out of heaven onto the earth before God created the heavens and the earth. That one-third of the heavenly host, they are not omnipresent. They can't be in all places at all times. Uh, they are finite. They are created beings. They are under the authority of God. They've already lost the fight that they were fighting against God, and their pending judgment is a pending date that has no opportunity for redemption, which is why they hate you, because you walked in sin being deceived by the devil like your first father father Adam, and your first mother Eve, but God sent his son to bleed blood to redeem you and give you what they didn't get, and that is the opportunity at redemption in life with him for eternal. The devil is not a made-up, fictitious character. He, his desire is the destruction of the believer and to work and confuse the work of God and the world and the kingdom that God is bringing into it around us. He is the accuser, but he is not the judge, and you need to remember that. He is the tempter, but he does not make you sin. He can tempt you to sin. He can show you and crop down the image to where you think it's what you have to have apart from God so that you bite it, but at the end of the day, he can only tempt you, and he is powerless against the Spirit of God. The resurrection took away his teeth. All he's got left is just like the Georgia Bulldogs, just a bark with no bite. Praise God. Too many football references? Okay. He can bark all he wants. He can accuse all he wants. But Jesus took away the bite when he came and lived and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now let me be clear. The flesh, the devil, and the world, all three enemies have been conquered by our good shepherd. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has set the Holy Spirit inside of you and brought us from being spiritually dead to alive in Christ. Jesus has defeated Satan and time stamped a date for his final judgment when he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. With Jesus doing all this, the only thing left for the believer to do is to take up the victory of Christ and move forward. That's why we can sing, You Are My Champion. Walls fall, (laughs) oppression's broken. Generational sin, done away with, because you're reborn. There's a name that you were known by before you met Jesus that may have had a bad, sinful track record with it, but you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. I have a friend, um, I went through a very broken childhood, like a lot of brokenness and pain. Um, We'll spare the details for now. I'll bring him sometime and let him share the story. And I was talking to him yesterday, and he said, you know, after thinking about it for the last year, we're going to change our, our last name. I was like, well, why? He's like, because that last name was tied to nothing but the brokenness of a family lineage that I want nothing to do with anymore. And we're a new creation in Christ. And over and over again, I read in scripture how people were Saul persecuting the church, Paul proclaiming the gospel in and through the church. And I just feel like it's a needed step in healing for us to put an outward marker that lets people know this is what's happened. God has changed us. So we're no longer going to be this, we're going to be this now. We've got a new name that we hold to. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 and 37 says this, if he's our good shepherd that prepares the table in the presence of our enemies, what should we say then? uh, These things, if God is for us, which if you're a follower of Jesus, let me be very clear, he's for you. You didn't earn him being for you. It's unmerited. That's why it's called the gospel. Oh, we could preach here for a minute. Some of you are sitting here and you, don't, you didn't have a good week. You did things that you don't want to see or be reminded of and the devil's been accusing you all morning. You tried to get up to go to church and you're like, oh, I don't really want to go to church right now. You tried to get ready to sing, oh, I don't really need to sing right now. All because you're basing God's stance and posture towards you on the basis of your performance over the last week. God didn't stop being for you because you fell into the flesh. He's for you. You've heard it over and over again, and you're saturated with it in the South, but let me be very clear and remind you, because we need to be reminded, God cannot love you more than he already loves you in Christ Jesus, and he will never love you less than he loves you in Christ Jesus. You have been fully received and accepted. He's not wringing his hands out, having second thoughts or second questions in his mind about whether or not he should have extended the offer to whosoever, since you jumped up and said, I'm a whosoever. No, he, he loves you, and if he's for you, here's the question, who, what enemy, What opposition can be against us? Did you forget that he, the father, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up, okay, gave him up for you. So that he could justly say, mine. You belong to me, who gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What are you going to say? See, for, for the believer, there's everything that you were known by before Jesus, and there's everything that you are now because of Jesus. Now, I understand that you've not been a perfect representation of Jesus since you met him, and you've got some things that people could accuse you of that are quite sinful, and so in shame, and you run and you hide and you try to run from that reputation. So you've been on this rotation of rotating churches about every three years because about the time they get to know you, they get to see stuff that's not pleasant and you run. Hmm. But what what I want you to understand is God knows you. He sees you. He knows where you've been. He knows the worst thought that you've thought. He knows the worst things that you've done. And he still sent his son for you because he loves you and desired your reconciliation, your forgiveness, your redemption. And so the the question is, who's bringing the charge? Is it your flesh bringing a charge against you? Is it the world bringing a charge against you? Is it Satan bringing a charge against you? And are you buying into them as being the judge over your life? Or the one who sent his son to redeem you, who will actually judge, are you giving him the authority to be the word? Over who you are. Look at what verse 34 says. It says this Who is to condemn? If you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Last I checked, so stop condemning yourself. Stop playing the devil's tape. Stop building your identity on whatever it is that the world says you're not. Stop making a greatest hits album out of your greatest failures. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. What happens when the woman caught in the act of adultery by the way the man wasn't thrown in front of Jesus? Now they only wanted to throw shame on the woman. Isn't it amazing that we do that crap in our culture? Like like we want them to get, you know, like quick justice unless they're our family. Unless we like them. That's why I'm glad you're not the judge cuz you're not equitable. That wouldn't be fair. No, Christ died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, this is amazing, interceding for us. You know that you've been prayed for this week? I just want you to think about this. Yeah, hopefully someone prayed for you in this room. But if no one prayed for you in this room and you're in Christ Jesus, he's been interceding for you. That's how loved you are. I know it's hard to understand and believe it. It's hard for our minds to grasp that a massive and powerful God could be this intimately acquainted with his creation. But the scriptures lay out for us precedent to trust that this is the truth, that God is interceding for us. Who shall separate us then? If Jesus is praying for us, if we're on his mind, if, if he's at work and not done, even though we've failed, even though we've run, even though we've strayed, if he's not given up and he's still there, who then shall separate us, the world, the flesh, the devil, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? But it goes on to say, you not not because you being a sheep, remember the illustration of the 23rd Psalm, no defense mechanism, no claws, no like nothing. Okay, you're just walking buffet. But with the good shepherd, you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You've been forgiven, you've been set free, you've been made new. So so look at the transition to verse six. If he's my personal leader, my shepherd, if he's a providing leader, we shall not want. If he's a peacemaking leader, he leads us by green pastures and still waters and restores our soul. If he's an effective leader, he leads me in paths of righteousness. If he's an able leader, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he can lead you through it. If he's a present leader, for you are with me. If he's a comforting leader, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If he's the lead defender you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If he's an empowering leader, you anoint my head with oil. He gives you the power now to walk in the righteousness of Christ. And if he's a generous leader, my cup overflows. Then what is actually left to be said except surely, surely. With that kind of leader, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely. Surely is a statement of conviction and confidence. It's a statement that says God is good and God is merciful. Not momentarily good like you and I are good. Not first day best performance good, which is what a lot of us are able to do. You can muster it up for a week, but I'm talking consistently and constantly God is good. No matter what battle you're facing, no matter what temptation you've failed in, no matter what sin or addiction you're in, God is good. Our inability to sustain righteousness and sustain perfection does not change his ability to be righteous and be near. To be good and be near. To be merciful and be near. He is constant, therefore you are not destroyed. He is constantly good, therefore he holds and sustains you. He is constantly merciful, therefore you are still the righteousness of Christ, even though if you've acted extremely unrighteously in this last season of your life. This is a constant Thing. See, Exodus 34 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Psalm 145 8 9, The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's good and he's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, steady love. The Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. James 1, So we got Old Testament, flipped to the New Testament, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. He's constantly good. He's constantly a good, he never had an off Christmas. He's never had an off birthday. He's never had an off moment where he ceased to give good gifts. He gave his best. He gave his son, and he continues to give his grace and his mercy through his son and because of his son to whosoever would believe. This is why we call it the gospel. This is why we get together. This is why you got 10 years of a church. It wasn't because we were just such good people and God was like, oh, they're really good 10 years. No, no, it's because he has been, is, and will continue to be good. So, because of his goodness, we can rise up and hope that he's not done. Because of his goodness, we can rise up and hope that there's still good work ahead, that there's still good fruit that we've yet to see, that there's a good harvest that we've yet to harvest. See, what makes God so good is that that is exactly what he is constantly. And what makes God so merciful is that is exactly what he is constantly. He's constantly merciful. He's constantly merciful. So sheep were known as the golden hoofed animal and here's why and this will land the plane they're known as the golden hoofed animal according to old african proverbs because everywhere they went they left the place that they were feeding in better when they left than when they had come now i could give you the farming reasons for why that's the case they eat harmful and um uh, they, they would eat harmful weeds, they would eat things that would hurt other animals, but they could eat them and they would leave the fields in a better place for other animals to come and graze. There's this thing called manure, apparently helps things grow, stuff like that. Golden-hooked animal, they're known as the golden-hooked animal. The idea is that everywhere they go, when you look behind, it's better than when they came. And so if goodness and mercy are to follow the believer, a good question for us to consider is the wake of what's coming behind us. If God's goodness and mercy is marking our lives, are we seeing a wake of goodness and mercy behind the wake of our life? (laughs) It's a good question, right? If his goodness and mercy, which is unmerited and unfounded by the grace of God and the constant goodness and mercy of him in my life, if, if that's what's constant in me, and that's what he's given me, then am I living, uh, leaving a wake of that behind me everywhere that I go? What do you leave behind you? That's the question I wanna land on. What's Four Point Church leaving behind it? What's your life leaving behind it? What's your work and your Monday to Friday leaving behind it? Isaiah 52 verse seven says this, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Your feet. And everywhere you go is the light of Christ bringing good news. Who publishes peace. Not peace you derive from yourself, but peace that comes from the Good Shepherd. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, Your God reigns. We're good news people. Let me say that again. You've been created in Christ Jesus to be good news people. So everywhere you go, there should be a wake of good news that comes after you. The world's filled with bad news. They don't need no help getting more bad news. But you are a good news person. We're a good news church. And it's our job to live in such a way that represents what God is giving us in his goodness and mercy that follows us. So that we leave behind a wake of goodness and mercy. So what are you leaving behind you? Do you leave behind peace or turmoil? Do you leave behind forgiveness are bitter and some of you are like you're preaching good until you got personal pastor that's the whole point if it ain't personal it ain't going to change nothing we won't we won't change i didn't preach for your amen i don't preach for your applause i preach that the power of god would change and impact you so that you'll be a new creation in christ i don't know where you're at right now in your relationship with jesus but i guarantee you, you stay around the people of god with the word of god opened up and the spirit of god at work you will not be the same person a year from now that you are on this day and that is my ambition and the aim for which we preach and serve and do everything that we do. I want you to change and be more like Jesus. So are you leaving behind a wake of his goodness? Or are you leaving behind a wake of chaos? Both point to the shepherd, either a good one or a bad one that you're currently being led by. Finally, is the fruit of God's kingdom seen behind you? Hmm. I believe that the best is yet to come because the good shepherd's here. He's not showing up because he hired a pastor from California that preaches barefoot and talks really fast. I'm one of you. I'm not a hero. I'm not a celebrity. Like, I I will be, let me be very clear. I will be the lead repenter of this church. I'm gonna lead you in repentance. When I screw it up and I'm not the husband I'm supposed to be, I'm gonna have accountability in this church that I'm going to repent to. I I am not gonna be a coward with my own sin, but then yell at you about coming before God and trusting him as a faithful father that forgives in your sin. No, I need mercy and I need grace. I'm gonna lead in desperation. I'm going to be the most desperate-looking Christian you've ever seen in this church. I need Jesus. I'm going to be the one that echoes, "I need Thee, I need Thee, every hour, Lord, I need Thee." Like that—that's going to be the way that I live. I don't know how else to do it. I can't—I I can't sit up here now like I've arrived. Whenever I am on the process of sanctification and I've not yet reached glorification, and none of you have either. So if you're imperfect and you're willing to be a lead repenter, if you're willing to be a good news people, if you're the kind of person that wants to live a life that's desperate for Jesus, meaning it's unexplainable apart from his spirit and his power, then I'm inviting you to come with us and let's charge the gates of hell for the glory of Christ knowing that he has conquered it and the only thing they got left is defense and we've been put on offense until Jesus comes home. Let's watch what God does when we unite around his gospel. And we allow a spirit to do powerful things through us. If you need prayer, that's what we do here. We've got people at the altar that would love to pray with you. There's people in the back that'll be in the back that would love to pray with you. But you move as the Lord leads as we respond to the good shepherd who leads us in every season of life. Amen? You stand and you move. I have the authority.